Episode 66 The moon with the rebel base will be in range in 30 minutes, 30 minutes. Every time Catherine revved up the microwave, I pissed my pants and forget who I was for a half hour or so. It's 30 minutes away. I'll be there in 10. I'll be there in 10. Is this a five-minute argument or a full half hour? You have 30 minutes to move your car. Your car. You have 30 minutes to move your cube. Your cube. You are listening to a half hour wasted. Making enemies around the world. And now, here are your hosts, Brad Milo and Frank A. Rincon. Jive talking freaking moneyless candidate for the psycho hatch hot charlie lady hope word gets around soon that luke cage sheds bullets like a knife sheds peas <laughs> that's how you play it doom you motherless son of a witch you'll find out how luke cage plays it i'm coming for you doom some way somehow luke cage is gonna nail you to the wall now why are we starting the show with all these luke cage quotes because we have the uh Pleasure of speaking with the the uh, author of those particular quotes, right? Weren't they yes. all from his yes. his books? Yes. Steve Englehart. Yes, they Steve were. Englehart. He'll be he on will, the phone momentarily. Will, momentarily, but we have to take care of some business, Brad. Don't hey, we? we are official now. Oh, How's well, that? Welcome to Half Hour Wasted, Half episode sixty six. I'm Frank. I'm Bill. Bill, the voice. I'm Brad. We are now official. We are uh, officially sponsored. <laughs> all we have a sponsor. Yes. Up. All grown up. We are sponsored in part by Discount Comic Book Service. Yes! Frank and I are big fans of Discount Comic Book Service. Well, Thanks to some Cameron Markler. Or some applause or something. Oh, yes. Let's have a little applause. There we go. And Bill, you're still waiting on it, right? You need to. I haven't become commercially sponsored yet. Well, I'm but, still but, waiting. My uh, forehead is for sale <laughs> and, uh, either shoulder blade. You need, you need to join DCB service. Why, Brad? Should I subscribe okay. to the Discount Comic Book Service? Well, it's a, it's a, uh, online mail order comic book service. Um, most... that's where I got my last bride from, by the way. <laughs> yes, but that was a different mail order service. Most monthly comics you can get are, are 40% off. And that's a big savings. Sometimes they have monthly specials of up to 50 or 75% off. That's huge. It's awesome. Uh, they have a flat shipping rate of 5.95 per shipment. Now, for all U.S. orders. For all U.S. orders. Uh, I, I ship twice a month. So it makes sense to purchase you can get, in bulk. Yeah, you can have it's like your the Sam's shipped. Club of comic book shops. It is. <laughs> you can have your book shipped once a month, twice a month, or weekly. I go twice a month. I go twice a month. Twice a month. Five ninety five per shipment. That's it. It used to be, depending on how much you ordered, they would uh, charge you more. But now it's just a flat rate of six bucks. Boom. Really? Five ninety five. That's it. Yeah. So if you, so if you get two hundred pounds worth of comics, that's right. There you go. You I can buy anything idea. in the previews, monthly previews magazine. And if I if I remember correctly, when you first um, decide to place an order with previews. They will send you the first copy of previews free. Yes, I think I that's think how so. it worked. Mm-hmm. So that's real nice. There's over 5,500 trade paperbacks in stock available for order. And most of them are 35 to 40% off mm-hmm. those trades. Um, you can track your orders online. I, you know, I'll go in and I'll say, okay, when's my shipment? I get an email that says, by the way, we shipped you something. Yay. It's real nice. I save lots of money uh, buying through DCBS. And my wallet thanks me. I'm and and my wallet thanks me, too. And you can get more comics. And Bill and everyone out there, dcbservice.com. Check them yes. out. 
Thank you. Thank I'm you. going there. Okay, guys. I, I got a new toy, real quick. Listen. Okay. Listen. Oh, oh, is that your new laser? Is that your new uh, razor? Ow! <laughs> Ow! Hey! That Ow! Gives you a good, that good burns. That's nice. I got it at Radio Shack. They were on clearance. I, I'm going to need those fingers back. It's I a, use them in my job. <laughs> it's a, it's a build your own. They have like different handles and different ends and different emitters and pommels and on and off buttons. It's really nice. Nice. And uh, you can, there's a button inside that you can have it switch from red to green to blue. It's like you're being your own Jedi, isn't yes. it? Yes. Mm-hmm. It's nice. It's a good, it's a, yeah, most, most toy. Jedi shop at Radio Shark. Yes. Hey, if Obi-Wan can make his own. Should we get uh, Steve on the phone now? We need to get Steve on the phone. All right. So let's do it. Uh, I guess we should pause at this point. Pause him if you got him. Okay. Pause him if you got him. Okay, guys. And on the phone, we have Steve Englehart. Steve, how are you this morning? I'm doing good. How are you guys? We are great. We are so happy to have you on the phone. Now, the focus of today's show, now, you have a wide career. I mean, you have yep. done so many titles. Just looking at your webpage, um, you've worked on Captain America, you've worked on New Guardians, you've worked on Daredevil. I mean, it's we just could, an awful We could list. spend 15 minutes just reading the list. I was, yeah. I, only in the past two or three years have I become, started to become aware of who has written what in the past. Mm-hmm. And it turns out I've, I've read tons of your stuff and, and, you know, didn't even know it was Steve Englehart that wrote it. But uh, I enjoyed it all. But our focus today, Steve, are four particular issues of Luke Cage. Yeah, Frank and, and I have been digging into these Luke Cage uh, Power Man essentials, and we've been having a ball with these. And and it it's to be specific, it's issues eight through eleven, and we'll get into those in just a moment. But how about we talk about a, just a little bit about your career and stuff you've you've done and highlights and stuff. Now, sure. um, let's talk about working at the Marvel offices when you were there with Roy Thomas and all that. I mean, can you briefly just tell us what was life like back then? Um, well, Marvel in those days really was a bullpen, the way they used to talk about it. It was a fairly small operation. Um, I came in there in, like, 1971, something like that, and, of course, they'd been in business then for almost 10 years, so it probably was even smaller before then, but... When I got there, um, I was in a desk. I sat at a desk where you were right there by the front door. Next to me were Johnny Ramita and Herb Trimpey. Hmm. Herb was doing the Hulk, and Ramita was doing Spider-Man and anything else that came his way. And um, across from us was the production department, the letterers, and and Marie Severin as a colorist, and a guy named Stu Schwartzberg who ran this stat machine and spent all his time in this room that was full of probably cancer-causing fumes. <laughs> uh, and and then back beyond that was a kind of more open area where um, John Verporten, who was the production chief, sat and his secretary, um, and there was an office. There was just one office in this whole thing, and Stan Lee was in there, Um Roy was back in the in the in the bullpen era, the the production area with John Verporten. So there was sort of Stan at the back of the area, Roy and John uh, the next up, and then me, uh, Ramita and Trimpey, uh, and then you were out the door. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, 
but it was fun. I mean, you know, and in order to make a thing like that work, everybody had to get along and had to be, you know, friends with each other. And we were because we were having a good time doing what we were doing. So it was a really fun place to work, I must say. Well, how did you get how did you get the assignment to work on Luke Cage? Did Roy Thomas give it to you, or how did that uh, come around your desk? Probably when I when I started, Stan was still the editor in chief. I mean, he was he was definitely just about out the door in the, in regards to that. But I overlap him by six months, and then and then Roy took over as the editor in chief. So Roy would have given the um, the assignments um, and. Uh, you know, Cage was a book, uh, you know, it was, it was specifically designed to go with the black exploitation thing of the 70s, but of course, they gave it to Archie Goodwin, who always does, uh, you know, intelligent, uh, better than exploitation kind of stories. <laughs> and he did it, you know, he just did it, I guess, for four issues, and then, um, you know, the usual situation in those days, there were so many books, and they, I mean, Marvel was so popular, and they were continually coming up with new books, so that generally, um, you know, the higher up the food chain you were, you might get the assignment to start off a book, and then, you know, and you'd get that book would get handed off to somebody farther down the food chain, so that the top guys could stay doing the top books um, after they were kicked off. So, I mean, Archie did four issues of it, and then uh, I was just you know, the first thing I did was the Beast, and then Captain America, and the Defenders came on, came hard after that. And then, by that time, they decided that I guess I was reliable enough that they could give me more stuff. So, I mean, um, you know, I was just standing there, and they came up and said, "Okay, you're going to do Luke Cage now." Because basically, I mean, in those days, again, that's how it happened. The people did not you know get together with an artist and go in and say, "We have a proposal for six issues of something." Uh, you were there, you know, you were there to do whatever. The assignments came from above, and uh, the good thing about it, I mean, you know, there's good things to both sides, but the good thing about that was since you weren't self-selecting, since you weren't saying, I only want to write about X-Men or whatever, the fact that you were being handed, you know, Captain America on one hand and Luke Cage on the other and the Hulk in between. And I mean, it's, so you learned to write a lot of different stuff and, and didn't become, uh, too pigeonholed. So how many books at a time did you write typically? Uh, I've always typically, found it interesting that you can, you can, uh, have more than one, you know, plate spinning at a time. Oh, absolutely. Well, again, it, it, nobody thought twice about that back in the day. I mean, some people did more than others, but uh, there was never, I mean, they had no use for people who could only, well, I wouldn't, I was about to say they had no use for people who could only do one book, and immediately I think of Stranko, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but, but, I mean, generally, uh, uh, you know, writers were there to do several books, artists were there to do several books. Um, uh, this, that was just the structure of it. So... I mean, do you have to find different voices? Uh, I mean, do you oh, have, sure. Do you have different voices inside your head? Not that I'm making any kind of reference, but uh, yeah. is, well, is that a talent or is that something you acquire through hard work, or, or is it more obviously a little of both? I think it's a little of both. It's it's hard for me to say. You know, I mean, they handed me stuff, and it turned out I could do it. And whether I, you know, just had the intrinsic ability to do it, or whether I, you know found a way to do it. I, you know, I'd been a big fan of Marvel. I'd read all the books, so I had all those voices 
you know, Stan Lee's and, and Roy Thomas's and other people's versions of the voices in my head. I mean, but, is, it, uh, is it like method acting? Did you have to pick <laughs> up a shield and put on a cowl with wings on it to write Captain <laughs> no, America and just no. put your chained belt to write Luke Cage? Or well, yeah, No, like, I didn't have to do that, but I, but I was, you know, I'm not from New York, and, and I was living in New York for the first time ever, so certainly, you know, just walking around 42nd Street and so forth, uh, gave me all sorts of hits about things to do with Luke Cage, but uh, uh, no, I never dressed up. I never was a costume. Kind of guy. <laughs> well, that 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 you know, going on Bill's question a little bit. I mean, how how does a white guy channel and write about a jive talking black guy? How did you do that? <laughs> well, well, I'm reminded. Um, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say who it was, but another writer back in the day once said to me, you know, the only people we can actually write are white men. And I took immediate offense to that. I mean, I <laughs> thought, you know, um, first of all, again, I'm required to write a black man or a white woman or, you know, I mean, this is before gay and straight entered into that equation, but okay. I mean, uh, there was all these different things. And I, I always thought that a writer needed to be able to put himself in other people's heads. I mean, you know, that's just, you've got to, you know, if you want to write credible women, you have to sound like a woman, you know. I mean, it's like if you want to write a black guy, you have to sound like a black guy. And, and I, you know, I will say that definitely comes down on the side of training. I mean, you know, I had no intrinsic ability to write a black guy, but... uh or jive talking one at that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and Archie, you know, Archie was a was a middle aged white guy uh, at the time. I mean, you know, the, the, there's always been a shortage of minorities, uh, either racial or sexual. It's usually been white men. Excuse me. Uh, I've got a loud cat. <laughs> Try to get her out of here. Um, Hang on just one second. Absolutely no problem. <laughs> Sounds like a good time to uh, talk about uh, the poll question related to uh, the DCBS. Hopefully you can edit that. Otherwise, you'll just have to have talked about uh, it. We've been, been having fun we on have, our own back We have here. minimal editing in this show, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> um, we could do it. We just don't. <laughs> okay. But, but well, you anyway. were talking about, yeah, ch- channeling, yeah. Just, just trying to get the, the right voice for the character. Yeah, well, I mean, Archie had established the voice. I mean, I was working with the voice that I had been given. Um, but again, there weren't, uh, it wasn't as if they could have given it to a black writer because they didn't have a black writer. Um, and they had almost no black artists, but they did have Billy Graham, who was black and an artist. And he uh, started out inking the book he was slow and so he he couldn't be too regular on it but he started out inking it sometimes he penciled it and he's the guy who kind of schooled me to some extent on being a black guy i mean it was i definitely um you know uh he would give me suggestions and i would take them pretty much as gospel but just to show you i mean to really answer your question a guy who usually penciled that book was george tusca and Tusca, it's a, there's a whole, whole other story I can get into about Tusca on Luke Cage. But Tusca, um, was a white guy. And he, um, you know, Marvel artists would put 
dialogue suggestions in the borders or notes or whatever. I mean, you would draw the book and you'd write stuff in the margins about what it was that was going on so the writer would know. Um, And with Tusca, again, if I come back to that story, I didn't always know. (laughs) Tusca liked to take my stories and go, "Mm, I don't feel like drawing that. And then he draws something else. (laughs) Every month, well, I'm going to get back to the Billy Graham thing here in a second, but but, um, the thing with Tusca was, he was an old, crusty guy, and I really liked his stuff. I always did like his stuff. But um, every month I would work out these storylines with Luke Cage, and I, then I would get back 17 or 20 pages or whatever it was of a story that bore very little relationship <laughs> to that. And and because I was a young writer and had no clout to go in and say, you know, what the hell, um, it was sort of my job then to make something out of that, and and I and looking back at it, I don't say it was the the best period of my existence, but I thought it, in in retrospect it was real good training for a writer to sit there and say Luke Cage would never do what he's doing on that page. I have to come up with some explanation that will make sense. You know, it really teaches you to think about you know people and 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 how. All right, he would never do that. Now, why would he do it? You know, I mean, that kind of stuff. Um, anyway, Tusca, in the midst of all this, had a scene. He threw in a scene in which Cage is running through an alley, and there's an old lady or a middle-aged lady oh, looking out a window. I know that scene, yeah. And she calls him a schwarze. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm, you know... I'm not Jewish, and I'm not from New York. I'm just, you know, some white guy from the Midwest, and I didn't know any better. So I just put that in, you know. And then and then I heard <laughs> about that, you know. So, you know, that was the deal. I was I was making it up as I went along and, and doing the best I could. And, you know, and again, I was relying on Billy Graham to, you know, so that I wasn't making a complete fool of myself, or so that I wouldn't make a complete fool of myself. I might have made a complete fool of myself, but... Um, you know, I was, uh, I was trying to get it right, I will say that, um, but I was definitely, you know, I was learning and turning right around and putting it into the book sort of on the fly. Now, um, and then your question, somebody asked me about how many books did I write. Um, generally, you know, once I got going, I generally wrote four books a month, i.e. one oh a week. Um, hey, Steve, I could I could kind of answer that. We have a one of our favorite websites is Comic Book DB. It's an up-and-coming, uh-huh. up-and-coming mm-hmm. uh, database, comic book database. I'm mm-hmm. looking at what they have as your chronological listing, chronological mm-hmm. by cover dates, I believe. Um, yeah. When, you st- when uh, Hero for Hire number 5 came out uh, in January of 73, Mm-hmm. Uh, you also had a Captain America, an Incredible Hulk, and the Avengers come out that same month, along wow. with an Amazing Adventures, number 16, actually. Right, yeah, Amazing Adventures 16 was, I think, that might have been the reprint issue. But, yeah, generally for when Defenders, when I did the Avengers-Defenders clash, and, it went, and they both went monthly for the summer while I was doing that crossover thing, Yeah. Um, that got up to five books a month, and... I remember saying, that's too much. You know, five is too much. But, but four I could handle. I could do a book a week. But I mean, so the flip side of that is, you know, you're, you're, you're writing, you're on the fly. It's, it's very much fun to be on the fly. But at the same time, it's what I was just saying that I was, you know, taking it in one ear from Billy Graham and shooting it out one mouth at the same time, you know, just kind of continually. 
it in lo- the moment. It looks like in the latter part of 73, you had as many as six coming out a month, including Goodness. Avengers, Defenders, Incredible Hulk, Hero for Hire, Captain America, and Marvel Premiere. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah, Doctor Strange. Yeah, well, some of that stuff overlapped. I mean, it, I, I don't think I did. It seems like when I hit the five a month with the, the Avengers Defenders, that's when I said enough. So yeah. I was probably sort of, you know, probably phasing the Defenders out while I was phasing Doctor Strange in or, you know, whatever. But um, do you remember anyway, the first that's book, just Do you remember the first you book you, you, you wrote for Marvel? Well, the first hero? Well, I remember both. But, I mean, the first thing I did for them was a little monster story. Um, Monsters on the Prowl or something. Yeah, Monsters called. on the Prowl, number 15. Yeah, Terror of the Pterodactyl. Uh, <laughs> the comic book DB also yeah, says you did an issue of Sergeant Fury. Um, well, I did some rewrites on stuff. I mean, oh, okay. I was I was kind of, it was just a, a continual sort of metamorphosis yeah. in that uh, I was in the office. Part of being in the office, I mean, the reason I was in the office was to kind of do whatever needed to be done in order to get the books out the door. So and you're talking so, script doctoring or finishing up uh, scripts altogether? Uh, doctoring. Okay. Yeah, doctoring. I mean, I think I, I think I, it's sort of hard to remember now, but mostly, you know, stuff would come in and, and, um, there'd be things that needed to be fixed, needed to be rewritten, needed to be done. And, and, you know, that was just, again, I told you who was there. And, and if you, if you think about it, I'm the only one <laughs> who wasn't actually like, you know, doing something. I mean, um, Trimpy was doing the Hulk. Ramita did do art corrections when he needed to, but he was doing his thing, and, and Trimpy would throw in on that, too. But, I mean, basically, I was the designated writer, me and Roy, and, and Roy, you know, was running the whole thing. So, uh, yeah, I did different stuff. But, I mean, I, I started out just kind of doctoring things, working with people. I did some, you know, I did some romance stories uh, after the monster thing. Uh, in those days, again, uh you know, it was a superhero entity, but they were still publishing westerns and romance and, and monsters and stuff, anything that might make a buck. Um, and so uh, the superhero stuff was the top of the line. Uh, but the way new writers got started was you wrote westerns or you wrote romance or oh, you wrote okay. whatever wow. to see, you know, because it was a way to see if you could write. You know, can you write characters? Can you write for deadline? Can you write? You know, whatever we hand you, that was kind of the test, really. And and um, so I did that, and then they said, okay, now you can write a monster story, and they liked the monster story, so then some romances, and then the beast, and then superheroes, and then, you know, then Luke Cage. Um, can, did, I, can I interrupt real quick? Yeah. I just wanted to say, I know we're going to talk about, you know, those four issues of Luke Cage specifically, but I just wanted to back up and say, uh, issue five with Black Mariah was was my absolute favorite. <laughs> nice. I just love that Black Mariah story. I just think that's uh, really uh, that, that was my personal favorite. Um, and then in issue six, I'm looking in the essentials. It it says Jerry, you and Jerry Conway share an author credit for that sp- specific issue. I'm I'm wondering if you remember why. Um, um I he, think I didn't. That was the one. My, my memory is that I sort of ran out of time. That ah. that or something came up uh, that I didn't get to finish it. Um, well, you were writing six books a month. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I was doing Doc Savage and stuff, and those at that point. Too. I mean, it was just like 
I think somehow or other the book got late and Jerry had to finish it off or something like that. Okay. But, just curious. Curiosity. Yeah, I mean, stuff like that happened. That was, I mean, and again, see, I just said I'm the only one in the office, but, uh, uh, you know, if I can't do it, then, you know, then they go find somebody out of the office to, sure. to do stuff. Uh, Books well, had to come out. Well, what was Stan Lee's impression of of Luke Cage, or did he even have one? I, I mean, I, I imagine it was, a, it, was a, it was a it was selling very well. So, but I mean, did he have any opinion on it? Not to my knowledge. I mean, mm-hmm. he, I'm sure he did. You know, he mm-hmm. must have had an opinion on it. But I, um, again, by the time I was writing Luke Cage, Stan had, I think, probably even gone to Hollywood. He was oh, definitely okay. not a, not in the office. So. Um, uh, I, I know Roy, Roy Thomas was the was the editor on on a lot of these. So okay, yeah. Um, yeah. So did did you come up with the uh, with the uh, sweet Christmas as his catchphrase? <laughs> I think that was Archie. Oh, I think, okay. Uh, uh, that that's used a lot that, at where that, I work. We we say that a lot. <laughs> you know, we go sweet Christmas whenever something you know catches us off guard or something. I think that was Archie, and again, you know, I mean, so. It's fine. Let's go do a black exploitation comic book. <laughs> but you know, we're not going to be up there with Shaft and and Foxy Brown. You know, blowing people's heads off and and saying whatever. I mean, it's still a comic book, and the comics code still existed. And and it's the so robots, forth. huh? Yeah. <laughs> easy. So, to, easy to pinch the head off a robot. I'm guessing. Sorry. <laughs> it's easy to pinch the head off of a robot. I'm guessing, and still uh, have the the uh, the comics code ship your book out on time. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, it was the you know it was the it was the dregs of the comics code. It was it was many people were still you know were trying to get away from it, but it still existed. Um, I, I'm personally... my favorite. I'm sorry. I'm gonna I'm gonna oh, please jump do. sideways one quick second. When I in my sitting around the office doing stuff days, uh, they reprinted Barry Smith's Frost Giant's Daughter for Conan. He had done it for a black and white magazine, and so he'd been able to get away with non-comics code stuff, but they were going to reprint it in color. And they sent it, had to send it to the comics code. And I still have a copy of this memo that the code sent back, which detailed panel by panel how much of this girl's breast could be seen. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know, that was still going on. Oh my gosh, that's kind of funny. A little too much here. Mm-hmm. Cover that's it right. up there. Do this. No. <laughs> I gotta say, as someone who was who was a grew up on nineteen uh, seventies Marvel uh, and, and DC also, but uh, I I appreciate the, uh, the 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 slightly more innocent tone that they uh, they used to take, and I I appreciate what comics are doing nowadays. But I'm glad I'm you know forty now instead mm-hmm. of nine because mm-hmm. I I don't know you know. I don't know if they would have the same impact on you, you know, if you were just a child coming into your own, starting to read your own books and make your own decisions and what you like and don't like. Um, um, I just, you know, like you take something like Infinite Crisis, sorry to go way off, but, you know, it's so dark. And mm-hmm. it's really good, but I don't know if it's necessarily appropriate for kids these days. And I just, you know, I'm sure the, the comics code was uh, probably uh, – um, well, maybe more harm than good uh, to the writers and the artists. Um, but uh, you know, as, as a as a comics fan, it was kind of nice not having to worry about it. You know, at the time, it's kind of like you know. Well, I, I know what you're saying. I mean, um, again, there's pros and cons to the whole thing. We were always aware that we were writing for everybody, yeah. and I mean, we were aware that uh, college students had jumped on it in the '60s, and now they were probably early 20s. I mean, we knew that our audience 
was intelligent and and mature to a great extent, mm-hmm. but we did know that we that kids were reading it, and we did know that old people were still you know were reading it who were into it. So you always had to write um, within you know within those within those frameworks. I remember uh, on Captain America, I had a scene where Cap did he was straining, straining, straining to do something or other, and he finally got done, and I just wanted him to say, "Damn, you know that was." T- <laughs> And and I had a long talk with Stan about that, you know. And Stan was like, "No, you can't go there." And I like, Stan, you know, this is, it's that's exactly the realistic thing that would happen, and that's how it would go. And he's like, "Yeah, but you can't do that because it's comics." And you, and it was a very, you know, at the time I was frustrated. And and as you said, you know, if we'd been able to use language, if we'd been able to, you know, go where you know comics have gone since, it would have been different. Uh, and there would have been, you know, there, you know, if Storanko could have done, you know, whatever the hell he wanted to do, it, it would might have been amazing, you know. But on the other hand, it was, it, looking back on it, it was interesting that we did sort of write for everybody. Anyway. Um, okay, but before we actually move on to the issues, I have just one more question about um, about just Luke Cage, and, and this was probably an RT. Goodwin type thing, but um, Cage has a has a friendship with a with the theater manager whose nickname right. is D.W. And I always right. thought that was kind of ironic and interesting. And D.W. Griffith was was a known racist, <laughs> and yet here's his uh, theater mad manager who is uh, his best friend who happens to have that name. Do you know if if Archie you know did that on purpose or was he trying to to say something indirectly? Um, Archie was intelligent enough and, you know, and, and knowledgeable enough that I'm sure he had that in mind. I mean, so I'm sure that he knew D.W. Griffith's racial things and used it as sort of an in-joke. But you'll notice that he never, you know, I mean, again, we weren't really going to get into heavy discussions of race, but, mm-hmm. I mean, he never really, um, never really ran with it or anything, Um so I didn't either, you know. But uh, I think I would I would say Arch, you know, Archie was intelligent, and so I would say Archie knew about that. Okay, but he yeah. never he never said it. I mean, he never explained it to me or anything. I don't know for sure. Here's just another stray thought I had about Luke Cage in general. I love how he always refers to himself in the third person. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a lot of fun. <laughs> like he's just announcing to the world who he is and what he what he can do and. I just that always cracked me up. When Frank started reading this essential last year, uh, he said, "Dude, you got to read this, especially this Doctor Doom story." Yeah, in fact, mm. great segue, right? Let, <laughs> let's get into that. Issue eight: Cage gets hired for two hundred dollars a day to find four men. That's the basic plot of this one. Mm-hmm. Um, Was two hundred dollars a lot of money back in nineteen seventy-three? <laughs> close to paying the rent back in those days. <laughs> Yeah, actually, it was. I think I, I think uh, think I heard somewhere recently that, like in those days, money was worth three times what it is today. Oh my so god! Six hundred, five hundred, six hundred bucks might be what they were paying. Him. I'd probably. But I mean, that's but that seems high for a guy, you know, a, a cheap a cheap hustler on Forty Second Street. You know? <laughs> Who uh, who reuses his uh, his business cards? There's a there's an issue somewhere in here where he marks out Pyroman and puts out Heroes for Hire or vice versa. It's very funny. Um, well, let's let's talk about th- just the storyline. So uh, we're we're not up to the 
you know, Doctor Doom is revealed at the end of the storyline. But uh, right. so, how did the storyline come up? What were you thinking well, when you put it together? Well, it was it was very definitely the whole idea was Cage versus Doctor Doom. Um, it was, you know, I their worlds were so different. I just really liked the idea of putting them together. Um, and you know, Cage, you know, if Doctor Doom walked in to Luke Cage's office. That wouldn't make any sense to anybody. I right. mean, you know, Doom would never go there. Cage wouldn't know what the hell to do with Doom, you know. But, you know, getting hired to find a couple of guys, that's that's what he does. But then, um, uh, you know, I mean, when he finds out, when Doom stiffs him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the greatest. Uh, you didn't hear it, but the way we, the way we started our show uh, today was the three of us... Uh, we quoted our we, we we repeated our favorite like Luke Cage quotes, mm-hmm. and um, <laughs> actually they were all from your issues. Uh, mine was when after the doorman says, "Oh, he closed the embassy and departed for our homeland not five minutes ago, sir." And Luke Cage just gets so mad. He says, "I'm coming for you, Doom. Some way, somehow, Luke Cage is going to nail you to the wall." <laughs> it just his that was just my favorite. Well, just, that you know that's it was. I, I talked earlier about getting inside people's heads, and, 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 you know, that was Luke Cage to me, that he was not, you know, nobody was going to mess with Luke Cage, and he didn't care, you know? I mean, it may be that if he'd been a bona fide superhero, he might have had more respect for Dr. Doom, <laughs> but, but you know, under the circumstances, just it, Doom is just some guy he's read about in the paper, uh, you know, I mean, and... and um, I mean, I always think it's interesting that if you actually lived in Marvel's New York, you know, the, the Avengers would have to save the place like once a week, and buildings <laughs> would be falling down, yeah. and, and all, all this kind of stuff. But you know, um, no. But I just uh, the fact that Cage, it's he was so focused, as you say, sort of on himself, um, and I mean, not to the extent that he didn't care about other people, but I mean, it just. It all sort of started with himself, as far as he was concerned, and and you know this guy, this guy stiffed him, so he's going to go get it, and and so the whole whole that was my whole idea of of let's take Luke Cage and put him up against Doctor Doom in Latveria, you know, I mean just, um, and it was a very it was a it was a controversial story, I will say. I mean I don't know if any of that comes through, you know, years later, but. Uh, there were people then, and I'm sure to this day, who thought that was the stupidest story <laughs> ever. You know, I, I, they just hated it. People, just some people, just really hated that story. And really? I would put those two wow. things together. Yeah, yeah. Steve, I can tell but, you this: this story has such charm to me. I absolutely adore issues eight and nine because of the fact that it's just it seems it seems silly, but it's just it. It, 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 there's something about Cage that that you believe every mm-hmm. second that he would go to this trouble to get his two hundred dollars. Well, he he points out, I, and and I'm looking for it in the in the essential here. It, it, I can't remember if he's if he's uh, repeating or he's explaining himself to Doom, but he he basically says, "Look, if you stiff me, then word gets around, and <laughs> it's my reputation on the line. Yeah. I know it's two hundred bucks, but." I'm not going to let it start here. <laughs> yeah. 
I thought it was interesting yeah. too. Um, he uh, in issue eight, um, he runs into Doctor Doom, and uh, apparently Luke Cage doesn't know who Doctor Doom is. Yeah, he he, he uh, reacts I, I was like he doesn't. He says, "Doctor Who." I, I kind of figured that Doctor Doom would be kind of a ubiquitous character uh, out there in Marvel Universe by that point. But was that the was that the case? I mean, did uh, you know, the Fantastic well, Four could, kind of the I only ones that knew about him? I, yeah, I just said that Cage knew him, but okay. uh, but apparently I didn't think so at the time. I would well. I mean, I guess my explanation there. See, this is where this is where I learned from George Tuska. This is how you explain stuff that <laughs> that you just got through <laughs> doing. Um, I guess you know the fact that Doom fought it out with the Fantastic Four and and this and that is kind of like um, I would say. You know, it's like if you if you ran into um, I don't know Britney Spears's manager or something. You know, I mean, it's like that's a whole other world, really. And I mean, it, you might say, well, you know, she's just just a woman and she lives in actual Los Angeles, and I mean, you could actually. But you're not really likely to run into Britney Spears' manager or anybody like that on a regular basis. Right. So I guess it could be that, uh, uh, you know, that Doom is sort of this mythological figure. Although it, it sounds to me like I just invented Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so. When was Doctor Who created? <laughs> I, like, uh, I like the scene at the beginning of, of number uh, nine when... Uh, <laughs> When Luke Cage goes to the Fantastic Four to borrow, yeah. their, to borrow their car, yeah, he's like, "I need a rocket stuff to put the screws on Doctor Doom." And, and Reed Richards at first is like, "I, I just love you, huh?" The Doctor Doom, our, our old enemy? enemy, and he's like, "Well, in that case, I guess it's okay if you borrow our car." Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. How much? Uh, how much in fuel did uh, Reed Richards burn to get into Latveria and back? Now, how about I just cut you a check for two hundred dollars? It'll save me some money. You know, the fantastic car doesn't get crashed, et cetera, et cetera. You know, is everybody a lot of trouble? Yeah, well, you know, Reed was always slow on the uptake. Yeah, he was yeah, brilliant. He, he may have been a genius when he came to science and stuff, but you know, uh, socially sometimes that's true. Kind of... Reed Richards wasn't really cool until uh, the ultimate uh, version of him. All right. Oh man, I like it when when Luke Cage shows up at Lat- in Latveria at the castle and he walks in, the doors unlocked. He Pulls it open real slowly, and and uh, yeah. Doom is sitting in his chair, and he says, "Greetings, Luke Cage. Doctor Doom bids you enter." That's two characters who are referring to themselves with a third person. I guess so. It's an epidemic. And he says, "Where's my money, honey?" It's a good thing and Ricky Doom, Henderson isn't in the scene. Doom even thinks it's ridiculous. He says. You mean the money I owed you for tracking down my robots? You came all the way here for that? A, a paltry $200? You are, you are crazy. crazy. It's just like he even knows this is ridiculous. Steve, you can see just how much joy this brings to us. It must we have been a ball to write, to write these issues. You know, Cage's world was small, really. I mean, he, you know, he, oh. he wasn't used to dealing in this kind of stuff. He just applied what he knew, you know. That's true. And, I guess uh, you've got the Daredevil in Hell's Kitchen, and he doesn't venture out of it very often. And wow. you know, you'd certainly have plenty of other characters that do the same thing. What was uh, Cage? He lived on was it Forty Second Street? Is yeah. That where the, yeah, yeah, he lived right yeah, where the, there in the um, theater district. The theater was. Yeah, he didn't get out much, did he? Now I've been to Manhattan a number of times, but it hasn't you know it's been in this millennium. So you know, I remember the you know the stories and how it's gotten all cleaned up. But you know, I think a lot of of us, uh, you know, have no idea what Times Square, you know, used to be like. You know, I, I assume that that understanding that probably flavors the stories a little bit differently too. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it is it is completely cleaned up now. It was. Um, I never thought of it as dangerous, okay. you know, but it was definitely seedy. You know, Cage's Theater would not have been some some um, 
just regular yeah, regular, yeah. regular features. You no, know, they weren't showing Casablanca in there. They <laughs> were <Yeah. laughs> You know, and throughout the, the this this two story arc, there's there's an underlying like civil rights theme where the robots are winning freedom and and mm. it's up to Luke Cage to to you know fr- free them. I I guess that's were were you trying to accomplish that that type of undertone? Yeah, but I wasn't making a big deal out of it. Yeah, I you, mean, you, it you said like, before I, that that you never really tried to exploit it that, but so it was there. Yeah, I mean, I I wasn't doing a you know uh, any sort of any civil rights treatise that I could hang my hat on. But I mean, the 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 parallel was obvious to me. I mean, that uh, you know these were the downtrodden people here, and and Cage had the ability to do something about it. I mean, that was all there, but I don't think I made any more out of it than that. Okay. Um, now, why did you decide to include the, the, the faceless one in in issue nine, the the light bulb head guy? <laughs> well, you know, uh, you know, you, you didn't you see it coming. Did you? I did not see the faceless one coming up at That's all. That's why he put it in there. <laughs> he looks like a, he looks like a, a precursor to the um, in Return of the Jedi. In the background, you can see the the. The monks, those mm-hmm. little spider monk things walking in the in, like silhouetted. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Back there, he um the the faceless one reminds me a little bit of of um, uh, Mysterio. Yes, a little bit. Mm-hmm. In, at, at least in design, but but it, it it just you know the great thing about it is that the faceless one just comes out of nowhere <laughs> for this story. It's well, just it's great. I was amused by the fact that the uh, faceless one um, established in Astonishing Tales issues one through three, apparently, uh, which I've never read. Uh, but apparently, uh, the invincible leader of the robotic revolt in Latveria really needed Luke Cage's help. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, wait a minute, he's the invincible leader of the robotic revolt in Latveria, but this is his second try. <laughs> he got it right on the first time. I guess there's I guess. a difference between uh, being an unstoppable force and an immovable object. Then maybe that's the lesson right. to take. I like invincible. the way. Yeah. I like the way this issue ends out. Luke, uh, Luke ends up saving Doctor Doom's life, mm-hmm. yeah. and Doom's like happy to see him. He's like, "Okay, here's your two hundred bucks. Yeah, Thanks, buddy." Yeah, he got the money right there. <laughs> yeah, he he pulls out his Doom wallet and he gets him. Is that is that two hundred Latvian or two hundred uh, U.S.? I think they're Doom bucks. Doom bucks. He says, uh, "You are the ultimate cage. I've never seen your like." He's oh, like he he's little, like impressed. He got a little now. street there too. He's a uh, he's a uh, he's a. Uh, I don't know. He's just like a total turn for Doom at that yeah. point. Well, Doom, you know, Doom was that mixture of of supreme egocentric sociopath and nobility. You know, that's that was the the thing. He could appreciate he could appreciate Cage's uh you know, uh drive, <laughs> maybe not his intelligence, right. but uh but his uh, you know, Cage did him a solid. He's all right. <laughs> well, um, let's move on to, to issue 10 and 11. And these speak to me so much because of the villain, Mr. Death, whose superpower mm. is luck. Yes. Senior Sweater Day. Okay, I, I've got to know. when I assume Roy Thomas read all these when he, you know, they passed his test before he went to publication. Did Roy have anything to say? Because... Steve, uh, uh, Mr. Death is crazy. I mean, his suit, his roulette wheel on his chest, <laughs> the chance thing of... Uh, it seems like a lot of work to go to to be a super... 
Well, it was the whole, you know, the whole Luke Cage thing was a lot of work in the, in, you know, from my standpoint. In that, you know, the reason that the whole Dr. Doom thing confounded people, not every, I mean, you know, but confounded some people, was the fact that Cage didn't exist in, in, and he didn't work in that world. I mean, Cage was much closer to, like, Dick Tracy in terms of villains, I thought. He didn't have, um, you know, guys like Dr. Doom. He didn't have super villains right, who yes. could just, you know, who got radioactive and turned green and, and decided to go out and do stuff, and then so he had to fight them. You basically had to had to create the villains, and they had to have some basis down on the street. I mean, you know, there had to be some sense that this is not esoteric Marvel land, but this is... Uh, you know, this is the the suburb of Marvel Land, or the you know the low rent district of Marvel Land. Um, so, you know, and since it was a new book, I mean, later on, obviously, you can go back and you can revisit people. But in those days, you, you know, I mean, in the early issues, you had to come up with new guys um, uh, who could somehow or other have some sort of street level explanation okay. for one of a better word you know and so this latino guy who was who was dealing with uh, gambling i mean it was like okay that's that's the level that we're that we're going for here you know now that you say say it that way i mean you were in a really exciting period then because you got to create some villains that have never been seen before you know, in, in the, uh, <laughs> again, or, 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say that, but yeah, but you it, said it. You beat me to it. Yeah, in this case, Mr. Depp. <laughs> I like the first time that we ever see uh, Senor Suerte uh, on quote unquote on camera. Yeah, uh-huh. he's sitting there with a drink in his hand, and his his right hand man says, "Senor Suerte, Mr. Luck." <laughs> they weren't lying. When you, it's because I mean, we know the only reason he repeats that is so. Those of us that don't speak Spanish know what Senor Suerte means. Right. Why did George Tusca draw him to look like a uh, slightly stockier Tony Stark? <laughs> he does look like <laughs> Tony Stark. Do you have to reprimand George for that? Like I'm trying, Sorry? Uh, do you have to reprimand George Tusca for that? Or uh, did you just roll with it? I, yeah, I, again, I rolled with everything Tusca gave me in those days. <laughs> um, this guy kind of looks like my dad with with bushy hair. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so um so um I mean how did you come up with with the idea for, for for this villain? I mean did you combine anything or was it just something that just came to you one night in inspiration? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I I speak Spanish and so I knew about suerte and muerte. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I knew what they meant and and um I just, you know, I'm sitting there you know, doing my job, trying to think of, okay, I need a villain. I did Dr. Doom. That was fun. Got to go back to the street now. What do we got? <laughs> you know, um, uh, and this whole thing about Suerte or Muerte, life or death, it's like, okay, you know, I can run with that. Um, so, so I did, you know. Okay. I mean, the character design, you know, that's all Tesca. I mean, uh, I very rarely, you know, tried to sketch out what what people should look like. I mean, first of all, I didn't have time, and second of all, I always felt that was infringing on the artist's 
you know, I mean, he's got to have fun, too. If I tell him what to draw, he's not going to enjoy it as much. I would assume that would be a collaborative effort, uh, that the, the, the literal creator of the character might say, you know, I kind of think he might have this kind of hair or this kind of build. or. Uh, but that's, that's interesting that uh, you just left that to Tuska. Yeah, yeah, he's I got mean, a roulette wheel be, on his it, chest. It, you know. it might be that in the, you know, after he did it, you know, I mean, the way that would work was uh, basically I'd say, you know, here's a new villain. Uh, here's what he does. I mean, you know, I'd give him the plot, whatever, design somebody who would look like that, who would do that. You know, I might, there might, well, there certainly were occasions when I would get back art and from anybody, you know, and I would say, well, you know, I think this guy ought to look, you know, we ought to change this, we ought to change that. Once I saw it, um, but that was easily fixed in the inks. I mean, again, so you didn't have to, you know, you couldn't slow down the process, but you could get that, you know, switched out. Um, but generally, no. I mean, um, uh, comics is a collaborative effort, but both people have to have fun. I mean, I try to give the artist, any artist, as much flexibility as possible so that he can do what makes him happy, which is, you know, draw stuff without being told, um, you know, what it is to draw. I mean, and that, again, the Marvel style of storytelling was... I would come up with a with a story, and I would and I would write it down as just you know, here's what the story is, you know, and whatever detail was necessary, now, as little that... or as much as was necessary, in order for the artist to understand it. And then once the artist understood it, it was his job to tell that story in pictures. Then it would come back to me to have dialogue put in. Um, so, you know, it started with me and it ended with me, but. If I was like micromanaging the middle part, the artist wouldn't have. You know, the artist he's going to tell the story, but he gets to decide the layouts. He gets mm-hmm. to decide the design of the page. He gets to decide all that stuff. And and uh, uh, I never really wanted to step on that any more than I had to. Now is that uh, is it different nowadays? Uh, you you see oh, sure. so so much less dialogue in, in a book um, the last decade or so. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you'll have a page that is just nothing but action. And I mm-hmm. have always had the impression that the writer um, made it fairly clear to the artist, you know, this is what I want to see. You know, in the midst of all this action. And again, well, maybe yeah, it's you, a collaborative yeah, effort, I'm, or maybe it's a case by case or an artist by artist basis. But well, I mean, there'd be and there were certainly situations. I mean, it, it was whatever you needed to say, basically. Okay. I mean, there would be situations where I would say, okay, you know, the cage bursts in the door, and he fights these guys for three pages. Okay. Okay. And and whatever. And, you know, but there were other times when I would say he bursts in the door, and he punches this one guy, you know, so that he falls to the right and knocks open the closet, and out of it comes some. You know, I mean, you just okay. tell them whatever they needed to know. But if they didn't, if, if it was just a fight scene, if it was just action, uh, you know, I very rarely choreographed that. When I moved over to DC and started having to do, you know, full scripts and started having to write every panel, that was like, it was annoying, you know? <laughs> was okay. that the difference between DC and Marvel at that time? Was, was that the way the scripts are written? Oh, and the company company vibe, too. I mean, right. you know, that was very different. Uh, Marvel was, the bullpen was this hang-loose sort of place. Um, tried to give everybody, I mean, the whole point was to give everybody as much creative freedom as possible. I mean, I got, you know, I was not being micro-edited from above. I was not micro-editing the artist, blah, 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 blah. Um, at DC, it was definitely, uh, in those days, 
DC's thing was, you know, we are number one and we have been number one forever and we are a corporation and we produce magazines and, it, you know, it was that kind of vibe to the whole thing and they did like to have script in advance, you know, so the editor, um, and a lot of that came from specifically Julie Schwartz who had been a magazine editor in the 30s and, and was used to dealing from the literary end of things and so okay. forth, but I wow. mean, it was it was um, much stodgier and much. Uh, you know, I mean, that's when they when they had me come over there and revamp the entire Justice League. I mean, that was why they realized that they'd kind of run out their string. Uh, but uh, but the, you know, but I mean, even even while I was revamping everything, I was still sort of working within their system. You yeah. know, doing it their way. Well, let's let's talk just a little bit about that that revamp of of JLA. Where had they where was JLA before you came on? Uh, JLA, um, it, overall, I mean, there had been various periods in the JLA, but but again, it had, you know, it was the it was the literal descendant of the JSA, which had been you know their group in the forties, and the JSA didn't otherwise exist in those days, except every summer they'd have some sort of crossover, but. Um, um, they, uh, the characters were all statues. I mean, they were all great, amazing characters that you, the reader, looked up to. There was no sense that you could, like, hang with these guys or that they were guys who would hang with you. I mean, they, they were all sort of off in the distance somewhere above you was kind of, kind of my impression of it. Kind of the watchman, um, weren't they? They were kind of the Watchmen, weren't they? Kind of, although the Watchmen, you know. I, I don't mean to literally draw that. You know, yeah, I mean the Watchmen was so fabulous, but uh, um, they were just, you know, they were they were like marble statues, um, and they, you know, every there had been attempts. Len Wein had done a nice run on them. Um, you know, Denny O'Neill had done uh, not completely successful. Denny had tried to marry. His kind of relevance to those characters, and it hadn't worked out all that well. But it had, you know, but it had, it had sort of shaken things up a little. But by and large, they were just, you know, they were just all guys, cardboard people in suits. They didn't have much relationship between themselves. They didn't, you know, stories never really. When they were over, they were over. They didn't carry on. It was just the antithesis of what Marvel had made popular. Um, I mean, I, I say, you know, DC's concept was we're number one and always have been. But um, in about 1972, Marvel passed them. I mean, I was there, and and, and Martin Goodman, um, who owned Marvel in those days, took us all to DC's favorite restaurant <laughs> to, uh, to celebrate the fact that we had finally passed DC wow. in sales. Um, uh, so... They were. It was. They had all these characters, but they but they weren't really alive. And that you know, so that's what they wanted me to do. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny because I've always seen the, the way you just described them is that Marvel is always like like the working class heroes. You can relate to them and stuff. And DC are more like Greek gods. You just they're just yeah. up there on this pedestal and 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 
you know, you can admire them, but you can't, just like you said, you just can't relate to them. Though I think they've done a much better job now. I, I think they're a little more relatable in, in some sense, but, 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 um, they, they never quite had that, that, you know, well, just like with the Fantastic Four with the thing, it, the thing, it seems like a guy you could hang out with and, and just, you know, have lunch and just talk, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but you could never do that with like, say, someone like, um, I don't know, Superman. Right. No, well, no. But even with, you know, the Atom. I mean, the Atom would have no time for you or, or yeah, yeah. you well, know, you I mean, none of an- those guys. Yeah, the anti-street gang wouldn't mess with, uh, you know, <laughs> Hawkman or whatever. Right. Yeah, yeah. He'd just fly right off. <laughs> Brad, did you have something? Yeah, I was going to um, say, it, I'm looking at the chronological listing of your books according to that website. Um, it seems like shortly after you went to D.C. and you started your Justice League uh, revamp that you were able to start... Uh, work on Detective Comics, and right. um, the, the storyline that is collectively known as Strange Apparitions, uh, which, by the way, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, go to uh, our, one of my favorite websites to buy trade paperbacks and purchase the Strange uh, Apparitions trade and the Dark Detective trade. Good for you. Yeah, I'm really really <laughs> interested in. in I'll, I'll in make I'll make twenty cents. <laughs> All right, awesome. Um, the the uh, strange apparition uh, trade uh, contains uh, Detective Comics four sixty nine through was it four seventy nine four seventy six yeah and in in doing a little research here I've noticed more than one website has has called this story um, the definitive Batman it's what the Batman that I grew up reading that I read today is is based on this humanizing the, of this of the Batman taking away the cardboard character of the Batman and making him personal. Mm-hmm. Um, where did you find that in you to do that? I mean, where did that come from? Oh well, I mean, again, I uh, getting inside people's heads is what I do, um, and Batman had always been my favorite. You know, when I was a kid, uh, growing up in the fifties. You know, comics had, you know, superhero comics had shrunk to pretty much Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. I mean, uh, adventure comics might have had, you know, Aquaman or somebody in the back, but, but there was no Marvel. Marvel was, you know, bankrupt at that point or, uh, you know, and, and so very few superheroes. So I didn't have a lot to choose from, but I mean, I, I liked the Batman quite a bit and, and when DC, you know, called me up and, and took me to lunch and said, you know, we want you to come over and, and revamp, you know, all the characters in the Justice League. I said, okay, I'll do that. Happy to do that. But I also want to write the Batman as part of the deal. And they said, okay, you know. That's fun. awesome. So, I, I wondered how you got to do both at the same time. Yeah. Um, well, and I would just point out in passing that the Justice League then became double-sized, you know. I mean, so it was it was really the equivalent of two books a month, but... Uh, so that only added up to three. So I still had time left over to do, you know, Mr. Miracle or whatever was going on. But, but, um, uh, no, I just loved the Batman and, and, and um, you know, uh, the fact that, that, well, I mean, I loved it and I had a great time doing it. And then the fact that, you know, people who read it liked it and, and, and called it whatever they called it, and, and the fact that, that it's still sort of reverberating today, I take some pride in that. This next question comes out of mainly ignorance on my part and not being into comics when I was that young in the 70s, but does this 
uh, Strange Apparition storyline, this uh, definitive Batman story, is that where the is that where the character of Batman kind of turned the corner from that that campy, always smiling character in the seventies to a more believable, more humanized type of character, down to earth character? Yeah, um, yeah, I would say so. Um, I mean, I gave him. You know, the the two things that I did was um, I made the villains scary. I, I you know I I made it a much darker, scarier world that he was living in, and I gave him a girlfriend. Um, Silver Saint Clair. Uh, Silver Saint Cloud, yeah, um, yeah. Um, so I I pulped up the world and humanized the guy in it, and and you know that that you know that definitely was the end of the whole. Um, Adam West, okay. pow, bam, Batman. And made him more thing. of a vigilante that we all know him of today. Yeah, I, well, again, I made I came up, I made him human. Um, I tried to understand who Bruce Wayne would be. Um, I'm not convinced that he's, I mean, he's, at some point since then, you know, he's become more of a, of a, psychotic vigilante um and i don't think he's quite that far gone my thing on the batman was um he wants to be he he devoted himself he swore to become the best crime fighter that he could be and that tension and that drive takes him out right out to the edge of sanity but he knows that if he went one step more he'd he'd not only you know become psychotic but he would also become less effective and and so his whole thing is to sort of balance out there on that edge where he's at his maximum effectiveness in doing what it is that he swore that he would do and and so i don't think him i don't you know i i don't understand him as a happy smiling guy (laughs) you know but i don't understand him as um you know, a monomaniacal creature of the night, either. You know, because um, it all comes from that human kid. It's that little boy who swore on his parents' graves, you know, that he would that he would bring down criminals. And and so it's. Um, I think the I think the secret to my Batman is that there's a that there is a human person there who's doing that. And that's what I was again. You know, that's what I liked about Batman was everybody else. You know. They got radioactive, or they breathed in chemicals in the lab, or they get, came from Krypton, or whatever. But he's just a guy, you know. I mean, he's just—he's got no power other than his own power, and so he had to develop that power to the best extent he could, and keep it there, you know. Um, but it's still—it's still just a guy, and and I, that's what interests me about him. I'm very much looking forward to reading those two trades that I'm going to order very soon. And Steve, we, we do need to, to wrap up here, but before we do go, I wanted to uh, to ask you, you know, if you want someone to know, um, you know, that this is what do you consider your best work? What we, like if you wanted to, to have one thing out there that, you know, you want people to read because this is the thing I'm most proud of. I mean, what what would you steer them towards? Well, the the quick and dirty answer to that is the Batman stuff, I think, um, but. Having written as many things as I've written, um, there there are various things that I think are, you know, representative of of the best stuff I can do. I mean, I would say Doctor Strange, 
Um, Thank you for mentioning that. You know, that. <laughs> in there, I would say the the Mantis year and a half on the Avengers. You know, um, uh, I'm I'm very happy with Nightman over at Malibu. I mean, there's various things that I've done, but you know, I mean, if you really if you said the one thing, even then that's tough. I mean, I, I immediately sort of react to that because because I don't think there is just one thing. But I'm very proud of the Batman. I, you know, I'll say that. I would like to say I. I'm not a regular contributor to this show. Um, I don't sit on every episode, but uh, when I found out that you were going to be here, um, I immediately uh, horned my way in um, because probably one of my favorite two or three Did they, Were they issues. sitting on thrones? And yeah. they, ah, no, no, they have them. thrones. You and, may um, come in, Bill. Yes, we um, bid you welcome. <laughs> I'm sitting I'm sitting on a porta toilet but that's okay. Um, the, I'm glad uh, of the telephone interview. One of my favorite... <laughs> individual comic book issues uh, ever um, is Doctor Strange Marvel Premiere number ten, the one where uh, yeah. um, the 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 conclusion of the Shumagorth storyline with yourself mm-hmm. and the incomparable Frank Bruner, and I just I, since I was a child, that has always been one of those that that I. I just have never gotten tired of, you know. It's like the the, the song that you've heard for thirty five years, but it never gets old. You know, mm-hmm. how does that happen? But I just, I absolutely, you know, I I thought, uh, you know, Roy Thomas did incredible work, but I thought you were the one that absolutely pushed Doctor Strange over the top. And I did, I think people should need to notice that, you know, shortly after you took over, um, they went ahead and gave it its own uh, comic book. You know, it stopped right. being Marvel premiere. And I know that it had been what Strange Tales, then the Marvel premiere, then to his own title, but. Uh, Man, just that I, I made Frank read the uh, uh, that issue ten, the uh, the Shumagorth conclu- uh, conclusion uh, this morning, and mm-hmm. you know, I just the I, I love I love you I love the way you I just love everything about the way you write, and and I frankly wish I have read everything you've ever done, and uh, I will probably go start searching some of that stuff out. <laughs> I'm gonna borrow Frank's uh, or uh, I'm gonna borrow Brad's uh, uh, Batman stuff as soon as it shows up, and then I'm yeah, gonna go get my own. I wish well, we could. He- Go ahead. Each Steve. one of those guys is. All I'm just saying is, each one of those guys is different. I mean, you know, I'm. I'm there's there's parts of Luke Cage that I think are, you know, where we started all this. But yeah. I mean, I, I don't know that I would put Luke Cage up there on the same level as some of those other things. But I, there's parts of Luke Cage that I'm quite, very, you know, very pleased that uh, that I did and so forth. I mean, it's just every character. I, you know, I tried to make it the best I could. You know, I tried yeah. to find the best I could for the for the character as he stood and and. Um, that's why it's tough to say there's only one thing. Hey, you've kind of answered this. I'm, I'm sorry. I know we need to go, but uh, I, I've got to know before we go. Um, when you're collaborating with uh, Frank Bruner, you know, do you write differently than drawing for or, or having George Tuska drawing for you? I mean, do you, does that influence your thought process, or, or does the artist, you know, do you collaborate more or less with artists you're more or less comfortable with? Um, well, it's. I'm, I'm going to try to answer that quickly because I know okay. you do have to go. Um, <laughs> It does vary artist to artist. I mean, it's a collaborative thing, and so each individual artist, I kind of get a sense of what he wants from me and okay. what I, you know, what I need to give him, and so on and so forth. That's the general rule of of thumb. Um, and certainly, just if I, you know, if that was as far as it went, working with Frank, um, I think because we were more of an age and we shared a lot of interests and so forth, uh, you know, I would have worked more closely with him. Than I did with Tuska, you know Tuska, that mm-hmm. was just that was just part of the job. Hand the yeah, stuff right. to Tuska, and he does it. But well, you, you I and Starlin might with, have worked differently. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I just want to say that with with um, the Brunner Doctor Strange, um, we really did do that as a sort of collaborative thing, in that each awesome. one of us um, 
we'd get together every two months, and each one of us would have ideas about things that we wanted to do, and then we'd sort of sit there throughout the evening and marry those two things and end up with, you know, what we finally had. So um, Frank is one of the one of the guys that I did sort of work, um, you know, completely collaboratively wow. with. How cool. Yeah. I cannot believe I got to ask the, <laughs> the writer of that issue those questions. That's awesome. I, man, I couldn't appreciate it more. I know Bill has tons of more questions, Steve. And um, after browsing your website last night and realizing everything you've written, I could sit here and talk to you for another hour. Unfortunately, we do have to wrap up. Um, and, you know, there's a small chance that uh, Mr. Engelhart may have a life also. Yeah, that's, that's true. That's true. Um, I would encourage everybody to go to your website. What is, what's your web address, Steve? It's, it's just steveengelhart.com. And I had a ball looking at it. It's recently. a nice, clean website, and you get to the information real easily and real fast. And I love all the uh, the, the covers and stuff on it too. And we will put your address in the show notes so people can access it very easily. I was amazed at everything you were involved in, from animation to video games to I mean, just incredible. I, yeah, the world of Atari. Oh yes, I love me some Atari Twenty Six Hundred. Yes, <laughs> right beyond. Right in our wheelhouse. Yes, it was. <laughs> um, Steve, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate sure. it. This Indeed. is a real honor for us to talk to a legend like this. And um, you take care of yourself, okay? You guys, too. Thank you yeah. so much. Thank you, see Steve. You. Right, I see. Bye. Well, that was exciting. Yeah. I'm I mean, to wow. talk to like a legend I, like that. Like I said, I'm, I'm I'm sweating. I was blown away by looking at his resume about everything he's written. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's let's wrap this up, guys. Um, okay, because it it turned out a super show. We didn't think it would be, but uh, it is. And then we talked about making it two. I think we'll keep it one. We'll keep it one. Keep okay, it one sounds part. good, Brad. Yeah. Okay, well, guys, thanks for listening to a half hour wasted. You can always reach us at halfhourwasted at gmail dot com. You got something? Well, we want to mention our sponsor. Remember? Yes, we do. DCBS. Thank you for sponsoring our. Our program and uh, and thank you for delivering comics directly to our front door. How much yes. better is it supposed to get than that? <laughs> it's not. It's pretty awesome. Forty percent off most of your comics. Flat rate shipping of five ninety five uh, for all your U S orders. Um, tons of trade paperbacks available. You track your orders online. Go to dcbservice.com. If you uh, don't check it out, you're a silly person. Yes, you Frank and I good. love it, and we've saved lots of money. We have saved lots of money. Um. Uh, you can reach us at, at uh, halfhourwasted.com, halfhourwasted at gmail.com. Visit us at thecomicforums.com. And, Brad, if they want to leave us a voicemail, how would they do that? They could pick up the phone and dial 641-715-3900, extension 775-0064. Pound. <laughs> and, uh, and, and we will play it, you know, when we do our listener shows and stuff. Bill, thanks for joining us. Thank you, fellas. Uh, Lip Biscuit, thank you very much. Thanks and Brad, I will see you later. Thank you, Westbourne. Right, brother. Later. <laughs>